0: Good morning. It is such a privilege to be here with you, and when I stand here, I just want to say so many things, um, but I I don't want to take away from the Word of God. So I'm going to say two things. This hour that you get in, in chapel every day, this is the hour you don't pay for. You ought to take it, like the saltines at, on the table at the Seafood restaurant, best saltines you've ever eaten. You even put them in your purse. Why? I don't get it, but <laughs> you should think of chapel this way, and you should tell everybody else on campus they need to think of chapel this way. This is the best. This hour helps you live out all the other hours that you spend on campus. The other thing I want to tell you is that when we take, after, we take commun- after you take communion today, you really ought to come down here to the altar. You should. You should. You should come down here, fall on your face, cry, let the prayer team deal with you. Because when you get out of here, and your church may not have an altar, my church does it, and even if it does have an altar, it's just not as cool to fall down on your face at the altar on Sunday morning and beg God to get you out of here when you're the pastor. (laughs) So here's your chance do it here. I once begged God to get me out of here, right here at this altar. And he didn't, but he proved himself faithful. I still remember that moment. So you really should come down to the altar. We get to choose our culture. If you really wanted a culture where everybody was crying and falling on their face and praying for each other, you get to choose that. So I want you to do this. I want you to hold one hand, your left hand like this. Hold your left hand up like this. This hand is where you are right now. And this hand, put your right hand up right here. This hand is where you want to be. I want you to look at that gap between where you are and where you wanna be. That gap, that gap that you're looking at right now, that gap is where frustration breeds, amen? That gap tells me something is missing. And, And how I respond to this gap right here, that makes all the difference in the world. So my question for you this morning is, How are you handling that gap? A Few years ago during Kingdom Conference here on campus, we talked about addiction and recovery and Dr. Kitty Harris of of Texas Tech University gave a great teaching. She talked about this gap. She says that in order to be mature emotionally and to feel normal, whatever that is, people need these basic needs met. They need physical safety, I need to know I'm safe. Emotional security, I need to know I'm heard. Identity, I need to know who I am. Competence, I need to know I'm capable. Belonging, I need to know I have a place. Mission, I need to know I have a purpose. All these things, place, purpose, people, you find all these things in the Garden of Eden. But we don't live in the Garden of Eden. Turn to your neighbor and say, you don't live in the Garden of Eden. You don't live there. And I'll say to your neighbor, welcome to this side of Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> because we live on this side of Genesis chapter 3, which means most of us are missing at least one of these things. So we have gaps between our real and our ideal. Something is missing. And that gap between where we are and where we want to be, that gap between real and ideal can create all kinds of pain and frustration. And that leaves us with a choice. We can make that a holy frustration or we can get stuck in that gap and it can stunt our emotional and spiritual growth. That gap is where the enemy of your soul likes to hang out. In fact, that gap is what led to the original sin. The enemy of our souls got Eve to notice that gap that exists between imperfect people and a perfect God. And once she was focused on the gap rather than God, he said, Isn't that gap painful? And while it hadn't been so the moment prior, it became so the moment she began to focus on it. That's the curse of the gap. The more we look at it, the bigger it gets. We become horribly aware of what is missing and then we focus on that feeling and the gap just gets bigger and to make the feeling go away, to try to make the gap disappear, to feel normal again, as Kitty Harris would say, we work too much or we become needy in our relationships. Say amen if you know someone, not you, who is needy in their relationships. We get addicted to things that ease the pain, which then creates more pain. We begin to expect too much from other people. And we do other compulsive things we hope will fix it. We want so desperately to fill that gap. And of course, none of the things we do will span that gap. But that doesn't stop us from trying. Does this sound familiar? No, really, does this sound familiar? Because we can move on to communion if it doesn't. So that gap becomes kind of a deal, doesn't it? A proving ground. Well-meaning Christians tell us Jesus fixes the gap. And in one sense, yes, he does. In that most basic sense of providing a path back to God, Jesus is our bridge. But Jesus does not magically fix gaps. We know this. Our circumstances don't magically change, our compulsions don't magically disappear, our pain doesn't automatically ease, we don't always grow up and grow out of our dysfunctions just because we follow Jesus. What Jesus offers is not magic. What Jesus offers is sanctification. You should write that down. (laughs) Or tweet it. What Jesus offers is not magic. What Jesus offers is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of maturing my perspective so that I no longer focus on the gaps, taking a creation-up perspective, how can I fix this, but learning instead to see the uh, life from the kingdom down, seeing myself through the eyes of Christ, who gives grace for the gaps while he calls me to use them to grow up, I mature my perspective. So sanctification is how Christians adult. And this is the gift Paul gives us in his letters to the New Testament church. He paints picture after picture of what it means to be sanctified, to grow up. And if I had to choose one verse from Paul's writings to characterize the sanctified life, I think I'd vote for Ephesians 4.15. It is as good a mission statement for Christian maturity as any verse in the whole of Scripture, in my opinion. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ. This line should come with sound effects, like a siren or something to warn you it's coming, so you can duck Because this line is a revolution in 20 words. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. As as if any of us knows what that means anymore. I mean, we're in an election season. When is the last time you've heard anybody speak the truth, much less in love? which is just a shame because it makes us really used to, to spin, which is so detrimental to community. We've learned to couch everything for personal gain so that the norm for public discourse is much more argument than advocacy, much more about my own provision and protection than the common good. Meanwhile, real truth wrapped in real love requires real trust. You ought to write that down. Real truth wrapped in real love requires real trust. I'm thinking about that place in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, where he calls the people out for how they've handled a guy in their community who is sleeping with his father's wife. You get the sense they won't confront the guy. So Paul says, shouldn't your heart break for this person? Isn't that powerful? In the face of significant dysfunction, he is prescribing a prophetic lifestyle. He wants them to learn how to speak truth to this guy, but their heart has to break for him first. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, the headwaters of a prophetic lifestyle is the practice of genuine love. The prophetic word doesn't begin with sin. It begins with a broken heart. Write that down. The prophetic word does not begin with sin. It begins with a broken heart. Paul says when an unbeliever is confronted with loving truth, he is laid bare. Secrets of his heart are disclosed, and falling on his face, he worships. So, can I tell you two stories from my community? One time when I did it well, and one time when I really blew it. You have to listen to the good one before you can get to the other one, which is what you really want to hear. We had a guy in our community who was an uh, addict, and he was—he came out. He came to our church out of. I don't know, he was studying some sort of Eastern mysticism or Buddhism or something, and so he was little, he was, he was odd, and uh, it took him a while to sort of find his place in Jesus, and he found his place in Jesus, but he was still drinking and showing up at small groups drinking and, and just sort of a mess of a person, and one night late, it was late, he texted me something that was very inappropriate. So I talk, texted him back, and I said, I'd like you to meet me at the church in the morning. That's all I said. So next morning we got to the church, and I put on, I channeled my mother, you know, I got her voice, and I said, "What you have done has crossed a line, and you're not welcome in this church if you plan to stay on the other side of that line. I want you to hear that your alcoholism has caused you to embarrass people around you. So you need to make a choice. Are you ready for Christian community?" Or do you want to keep drinking for a while? Because you can't stay here if you can't be in community. And he was broken by that. He, he went to the worship space. He fell on his face in front of the cross. That was about six years ago, and he has not taken a drink of alcohol since. That one was one I did well. So just a few weeks ago, Now, I've been in ministry for 18 years, so I want you to hear this, okay? It doesn't get better, at least not in the first 18 years. Um, so just a few weeks ago, another, she's the worst alcoholic I've known ever. And she's been in our church. We've sent her to rehab. We've tried everything. We've prayed over her. We've done everything. She just continues. She cannot seem to break herself of the addiction. She called me at 6 o'clock in the morning just a few weeks ago. When I, my phone rings, it's actually 5 till 6. When my phone rings at 5.55, you'd better be in a hospital bed or a casket. So I said, who's dead? Nobody. I said, well, who's sick? Who's in the hospital? Nobody. What, are you, what is this? Do you have a minute to talk? <laughs> what? She said, well, at my small group last night, I was sort of offended because somebody called me out because of my alcoholism. And I know I'm an alcoholic, but, and that's about as far as she got. I mean, I blew up. I blew up at her first. I'm, I'm, I'm downstairs, I'm circling the little, you know, part of my, you kind of make a, you can make a lap in my house, and, and my husband's sitting on the steps going, Jesus have mercy, Jesus have mercy, Jesus have mercy, <laughs> Jesus have mercy. Exactly what he should have done, should not have gotten anywhere near, uh, near me in that moment. And I am, I'm yelling at her, and then I'm yelling at the enemy of her soul, and I'm yelling at the spirit of alcoholism, and I'm trying somehow to spiritualize this by, you know, praying to Jesus, but I'm just furious, and I grab my keys, I'm still yelling. I get in the car, barefoot, in my pajamas, drive to her house, go in her kitchen, and continue the conversation. (laughs) And this is the person leading you spiritually this morning. I'm ready to take her to detox, and she won't go. And I'm asking her over and over again, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And she doesn't know. And I eventually left. And somewhere during the course of that day, I called her, we talked. And I realized that my frustration had hardened my heart with her. That was not a holy frustration. It's a very unholy frustration. We've talked every day since. It's the hardest text or phone call I make, but I've decided that I need to get my heart broken again for the people who break God's heart. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Church of Jesus Christ needs most in this age. We need people who will confront sin not from a soapbox, but face-to-face in loving and redemptive ways. We need people who are not afraid to care for each other by speaking truth in love. We need people who walk this life out so fully that others are laid bare just by watching it. The Church of Jesus Christ is starving for people willing to live out a prophetic lifestyle grow up in every way Paul says every way not just the convenient ways the places where it's more fun to be of age than not but every way in speech and silence in public and private in submission and responsibility in love power and self-discipline maybe especially self-discipline in other words Paul counsels act like adults which flies in the face of so much that comes at us from every other direction. We are encouraged to pander to our inner child, to coddle his or her pain past good sense, to keep putting Spider-Man band-aids on gaping childhood wounds so we never actually have to heal. We are encouraged to a state of arrested development, spending far more time accommodating the child we used to be than encouraging the adult we we can become. If you're not a child, if you're not a child, there comes a day when you need to tell the child inside, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were wounded. I'm sorry you felt invisible. I'm sorry you didn't feel safe, heard, known, valued. I'm sorry for everything in your life that didn't go the way it should have gone. But it is time for the adult in the chi- in the room to invite the child to sit down so the adult can drive the bus. Sounds like my sister's Uh, Father was a sister-in-law's father, was a great guy. Otis was his name. I only met him at his funeral when his children and grandchildren stood up and told some great stories about uh, his life and life out in the country. The family had a huge amount of land out there in the country, dirt roads and fields out in the middle of nowhere. Otis owned a VW bus and most of his children learned to drive on those dirt roads on that bus. Uh, he'd let them drive out there and those old dirt roads even before they were old enough to drive. And one, one grandson stood up and said, Yeah, granddaddy let me drive the bus. First time I drove it, I was four years old. We pulled off this dirt road and he gave me the wheel. It was a blast right up until the moment when I turned the bus over into a ditch. Granddaddy wasn't upset with me, his whole focus was on how to fix it so nobody found out. <laughs> That's what happens when children drive the bus. So when the child inside is making the choices, it can be thrilling. But it can also drive our lives into a ditch. So Paul is calling us to grow up, to do the recovery work, to do the healing work, to do the confession work, here, now, because the church is starving For grown-up adults who can live a prophetic lifestyle out there it's time to grow up Paul says he'll move on because as it turns out children living in adult bodies aren't very happy We, we will never get to the richness that is the good life if we never challenge ourselves to maturity speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is our head into Christ You know how little babies have heads that are disproportionately bigger than the rest of their bodies? It's cute in a baby. It would look odd in an adult. God is calling us to grow up into our head. Why? Because if the head is Christ, the head is mature. And the rest of us need to grow into that so we don't keep falling over from the disproportion. I know I'm not there yet. I proved it to myself a few weeks ago. I'm not there yet, I I know it. I know it when I hear stories like Carrie and Tony's story. Carrie and Tony are missionaries to India. They came. Uh, they went to India from Atlanta. Carrie is an amazing woman, a gifted teacher and leader. Tony was a math teacher when they were in the U.S. They had a very successful life, but then God called Carrie and Tony to leave their work here to go live in North India to reach Muslims there. By all accounts, they were clearly called. God provided, he settled them in the perfect neighborhood, gave them strategies for becoming part of the Muslim community in that city. On the surface, everything seemed great, and everything was great for Tony, who daily takes his motorcycle down into the Muslim alleyways where he is greeted by everyone, invited into shops for tea, who's now built enough trust with this community that the religious leaders are calling him to religious events and into spiritual conversations. That's Tony's reality, but it's different for Carrie. Carrie has also been called to live like Christ in this community, but for her, that means wearing a burqa She's mostly confined to her home. She has no status as a teacher or leader as she had when she was here. In fact, in that society, she's not valued at all. The Mission Society staffer who supports Kerry says, unless you've experienced it, it may be difficult to comprehend the deep identity crisis this evokes or the painful surrender this requires. It is a struggle daily to accept the humiliation of the incarnation in this cultural context. But God continues to do his work in and through Carrie, in the invisible world that Indian women live in. And it's in this humble, hidden place that Carrie is experiencing Jesus as she gathers small groups of women into her home to study the Bible. These are women who get what it feels like to be invisible in a way I could not even begin to fathom. She invites women into her home. She shares her story with them and how Jesus has healed her and is healing her and her story is bringing healing to other women and her story stops me in my tracks. Because her life isn't about building big things that draw big crowds. Her life isn't even about doing things that make sense. The only way she can do this is because she knows who she is and whose she is. This is very grown-up work, this work of being the incarnation. It isn't for children. It isn't work for people who'd rather focus on the gaps and use them as an excuse to avoid the work of sanctification. Carrie's story inspires me. She's taken this frustration that breeds in that gap and she has turned it into a holy frustration and a broken heart for those who don't yet know. Rather than focusing on her Self, she's not safe, she's not known, she's not heard, and all of those things are true. She's turned her frustration into a broken heart for the women of India who are not safe, not known, not heard. And that is what it means to be sanctified. This is what it means to grow up in every way, into him. And this is how truth becomes love. I want you to go hard after healing while you're here, students, because the church is starving for leaders who know how to adult.